All right, hello everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of science and spirituality. In this episode, we are talking about whether or not we are made for divinity. Is divinity a part of our genetic code, or is it something that is taught to us like by society? Um, and that's something that has more of a cultural um, influence than anything else. This is going to be kind of a long episode. We're going to talk about it kind of from the archetypal point of view. Um, we're also going to talk about it scientifically using studies that have been done recently um, and also hypotheses that are a little outdated, um, but still have some relevance to this conversation. So buckle in um, and we'll go ahead and just get started. Before we actually talk about um, whether or not we are built for divinity, we are going to do the what happened on this day. Um, we're recording this on March 13th. And so in 1930, um, the discovery of a ninth planet was announced at the Lowell Observatory. It was one-tenth the size of Earth and 4,000 million miles away. If you know your um, astronomy, you might know what planet I'm talking about. Uh, but it was later named Pluto and considered to be a ninth planet for a while. However, according to NASA back in 2006, um, it's no longer considered a planet, um, at least within the astronomy realm, though astrologically speaking and in planetary workings, um, Pluto is very much so still a planet that has its uses. So I thought that was, thought, thought that was interesting. But let's just dive right in. <laughs> why waste any time? Um, but let's talk about why we might think that humans are built for divinity like what even brings up that conversation i guess there's this idea that um there are a lot of shared um aspects across religions like the fact that we have religion appearing in many many different cultures and a lot of those have um shared aspects so that might be um kind of fertility um deities which you could argue is kind of a cultural thing or it might be um transcendent experiences appearing in multiple different cultures um, but there's this argument being made that it's somehow inherent to um, humanity because it appears in lots of different cultural contexts. Um, I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, I agree. I think the fact that we see religion in so many different cultures, even varieties of religion, um, we see kind of the same um, like overarching topics pop up, no matter kind of what religion you're a part of. And so I think this idea of being built for divinity, it's almost a way to to connect all of those things together and also a way for us to feel if I'm being a little I don't know what you would call it um I don't know what the word, the word I'm looking for um but it helps, makes us kind of feel important or like we have a purpose if we're built um for divinity like we're built to have um, a purpose of worship or something along those lines that we're not alone I think that also plays a bit of a role um Belle what do you think um yeah, the whole concept of are we built for divinity is a very interesting one. And one of the questions that I sort of was musing on is, are we built for divinity or are we just built for patterns and symbols? So I think it's hard to talk about those two things or just the idea of, of sort of what, what the word, the phrases we were kind of dancing around, which I think a lot of people have heard the term collective unconscious. Um it's hard to talk about that without talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Carl Jung. So I, I was reading, I have some of his books and some of his contemporaries' books. And so a quote that he has about the collective unconscious and sort of this idea of symbolism, syncretism, and divinity. There are many symbols, however, that are not individual, but collective in their nature and origin. They, these are chiefly religious images. The believer assumes that they are of divine origin, that they have been revealed to man. The skeptic says flatly that they have been invented. Both are wrong. It is true, as the skeptic notes, that religious symbols and concepts have for centuries been the object of careful and quite conscious elaboration. It is, this, it is equally true, as the believer implies, that their origin is so far buried in the mystery of the past that they seem to have no human source but they are in fact collective representations emanating from primeval dreams and creative fantasies. As such, these images are involuntary, spontaneous manifestations 
and by no means intentional inventions. So I'm not necessarily agreeing with Young here, but I think it's important when we talk about the idea of being built for divinity that Young and his contemporaries and the sort of creation of this term collective unconscious very much permeates the study of being built for divinity. And let's see, uh, is this quote going to be relevant right now? I might throw it in later. I think I'll, I think I'm going to uh, go to, maybe I'll bring this quote up later. Uh, but one of the other things that he talks about that Freud had mentioned is called archaic remnants, mental forms whose presence cannot be explained by anything in the individual's own life and which seem to be innate and inherited shapes of the human mind. So those are, are where a lot of these questions kind of, I, I think the idea of being built for divinity is not just a modern one, but a lot of the our words that we use to describe it are definitely coming from psychoanalysis and Jungian theory. So um, we've kind of tried to, well, not we, but uh, as humanity has tried to kind of medicalize these um, psychoanalytic techniques by asking if there's a biological basis for it. Um, and this field is called neurotheology. Um, and one thing to kind of point out is that this is a really small field. And the, probably the reason it's so small is that A, you don't get the funding for um, non-health related purposes. And B, it's quite a hard thing to study, right? You need large human trials and um, you need things to be quite carefully controlled. And as we've talked about before, that's something that's expensive and really hard to do. So bearing that in mind, the research that we're going to discuss is quite niche. And quite a few of the publications are in quite sort of small niche journals. And I, this actually brings up a really good opportunity um, to talk about something called journal impact factors. And this is something that I wanted to talk about back in our um, research episode, but I didn't have the chance to. And now the impact factor was initially designed by Eugene Garfield, um, who was the founder of the Institute for Scientific Information. And the impact factor is generally used as a proxy for the relative importance of a journal within its particular field. Now, keep in mind that impact factors from field to field are going to vary significantly. Um, and it's not usually fair to take um, what's considered a good impact factor from one field and apply it to another because of the differences um, between the fields specifically. But generally speaking, journals with a higher impact factor are typically deemed to be more important or contain better, more well-researched information. And while impact factors are a good kind of first look at a journal, they aren't an end-all be-all. Impact factors themselves are actually of debated usefulness. Um, you'll hear some scientists say that they are useful. Sometimes scientists say that it's really not, and you have really high impact journals that publish really crappy data. Um, so again, they may give you an idea of how critically you need to review papers within a particular journal, um, or kind of overall, like how quote unquote good it is. Um, but like I said earlier, it's equally possible that a journal with a high impact factor will have poor papers in terms of study design and the conclusions draw. And that is why, like we've always said, um, your own critical evaluation of what you're reading is super important. So running off of that, how do we study spiritual experiences? And how do we even define what a spiritual experience is? Um, so I, was, I looked up this up because if I try to answer that question myself, what is a spiritual experience, I kind of get palpitations because I'm like, I'm not sure how I would answer that. <laughs> and I might ask you to answer it in a minute. Um, but when I was looking at how it's formally defined, it turns out that there are quite a lot of different scales. So it's quite heterogeneous between studies. Different studies will use different scales, and that means it's quite difficult to compare between different studies. But generally, the kind of things we're looking for are uh, magical ideation. We're looking for sense of unity, uh, noetic quality, um, sacredness. And again, these are things which are quite hard to define between individuals. Um, positive mood is very often thrown in there. A feeling of transcendence of time and space. So that might be a bodily experience or more mental. And ineffability. And those are the things that are kind of common across a lot of different scales. Um, but as I mentioned, these are kind of poorly standardised. So it's just important to bear in mind that um, not all studies are going to be comparing things equally. 
but how do you how do you define a scientific um, how do you define a spiritual experience oh boy <laughs> that's such a loaded question um i i think it's important here to understand that while these are scales they're still subjective and can be influenced by external factors and this is one of the reasons why i think it is hard to define it because it's not something that is like quantifiable and um constant because of how it can be influenced um i think the skills provide good organization and different differentiation between states of like religious experience um but again it's qualitative and it's not quantitative and I think we also kind of enter into the realm of whether spirituality in a more general sense is synonymous with religion. Um, do there need to be different skills looking at religion versus magical ideation or spirituality? Um, like, is that how we would define or break down a spiritual experience, one that is like religiously based and one that is not influenced by a person's religion? Um, I I don't know. <laughs> I kind of lean towards the, yes, we should separate religion from spirituality because I think someone can have a spiritual experience, however they might define that, um, in the absence of their religion. So while the two are are similar and they, they correlate, they aren't the same. Um, and we'll touch upon that later. But yeah, it, defining spiritual experience, I think, is really difficult. But I do think taking it out of a religious context can maybe remove some of the external influences upon it and give it a bit more of a defined meaning. Um, Belle, what do you think? God, that is such a hard question to answer because I think what's really interesting, so I I, I was rereading um, my uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces and as I was rereading it, I was like, oh, I understand where a lot of my ideas came from because one of the one of the big ideas in the hero with a thousand faces by joseph campbell is the idea of the macrocosm and the microcosm and this idea of mythology as a representation of a lot of these ideas of collective unconsciousness and sort of innate spirituality and it really dances the line between spirituality and psychology and so especially for me realizing that i i came into the sort of spiritual practice from a psych model. It, I think it's hard to define where psychology ends and spirituality begins. And I, I know that sounds very strange, but one of the, one of the interesting things that he mentions in this book, uh, he says, the key to modern systems of psychological interpretation, therefore, is this. The metaphysical, e the metaphysical realm equals the unconscious. Correspondingly, the key to open the door the other way is the same equation in the reverse. The unconscious equals the metaphysical. For as Jesus states, behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So I think it's really hard to study spiritual experiences because where is that line between psychology and spirituality? We talked a lot about that in our placebo episode as well. So I think, I think it's very difficult, especially since a lot of modern psych was initially based off of Jungian archetypal theory. I, I, it's just such a, it's just so complicated. Something that I also wanted to point out, just jumping off of that, is that a lot of the magical ideation scales were not developed initially to, to study a spiritual experience, but they were designed to study um, like mental illness or, or um, divergent um, personality types like schizotypy. So yeah, there's there's kind of this idea of like a bell curve of like normal human experience where maybe somebody who it has a, a neurodivergent phenotype or is um, mentally ill might actually overlap with a spiritual experience. And maybe those things are the same and maybe they're not, but it's um, if we're using the same scale to measure them, then um, it's quite hard to see the dividing line between the two. But yeah, food, food for thought, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of talking about those models, let's discuss the models that we can use to study spiritual experience, at least as best we can. Um, like we kind of mentioned, spiritual experiences are unique and we can't really study them using traditional cell or animal models like Hanny and I are so, so used to um, for obvious reasons. And this is 
one probably one of the reasons that the neurotheology field is so small, uh, because getting ethical permission and financial access for complex human studies is challenging, and, and complex human studies of this nature is also challenging. Um, but there are some natural variations or phenomena in the human population from which we can infer information about spiritual experience. Um, Hanny, you listed a couple of, of examples down below. Do you want to talk about them? Yeah, sure. Um, so I found a few examples, um, one of which was um, spiritual experiences which were developed after a brain injury. And initially I thought this was really interesting because, okay, maybe it would imply um, a specific area of the brain that if it was injured um, or it, um, a kind of divergence in that phenotype could lead to um, development of spiritual traits. Like maybe it is kind of biologically innate to this area. However, when I looked into it, yes, there were um, uh, it increased um, self-reported spiritual experiences in the cohort which had lesions in this particular area. They also were Vietnam vets, so they'd come back from a really traumatic experience at war. And it's not really difficult to see why somebody who's had a really difficult um, experience, maybe has PTSD, might turn to spirituality and, um, instead and then have an experience as a result of their kind of religious predilection. So I think that it's quite difficult to extricate the um, personal experience there from the actual bi biology. So I didn't think that that was a very good model. Um, what do you guys think of this kind of um, model? Would you trust it? It's interesting. So yeah, when you put these, um, some of these articles into our like group chat, I read a couple of them and I thought it was very interesting that the studies that they did where they were looking at a particular region that is um, harmed in some way, they typically use a pre-existing condition. So something like PTSD, or I believe there was one where there was an injury to like the right parietal lobe of the brain. Um, and it's those, those areas that they looked at to see if they saw a difference between people um, in which those areas were impacted by some kind of damage versus healthy people. And in a way, I think that's, that almost conditions the data to like go one way rather than the other because it's there. there's a traumatic injury of some kind. And so we're assuming here that the function of the, of the lobe, for instance, is uninfluenced by anything over, other than the injury itself. And I don't necessarily think that's true, um, especially if there's been a period of time after the injury has actually occurred. There are other changes that will occur because of the injury itself and those aren't necessarily taken into account and i think that can maybe have an influence but i have some issue with the way those studies were done just because i don't think that like utilizing um an already injured brain is necessarily the best way to gain that information however that being said i do see why they did it that way because i think ethically finding a reason to say hey we want to intentionally harm this person's like parietal lobe um, for a study on spirituality. I don't think that would really go over very well with the ethics committee. Um, so it's a fine line to walk, trying to to get an unbiased study in that way, but like also fulfill our ethical obligations. Um, there were also another um, few models I looked at. So um, one of them was um, this kind of feeling of religious ecstasy before an epileptic fit. I found this really interesting because there are some references to this in history. And those have sometimes been interpreted as spiritual experiences. Um, there's a book called The Idiot by Gogol, which I really enjoyed. And um, the protagonist, The Idiot, um, ha reports this kind of feeling of euphoria before he has an epileptic fit. Um, and that has like quite a profound impact on his character development. Um, and then when you look at um, an, epileptic, an epileptic fit, you can see that certain regions in the brain, I think the default mode network is kind of downregulated. So you could argue that maybe um, that's something that we can associate with a spiritual experience. But it's quite difficult because obviously this is a, a disordered brain, if you like. So you're not looking at a healthy individual and it's hard to know whether that same experience is transferable. Um, we also mentioned parietal lobes. Um, so this was um, a study where people looked at um, injuries to the parietal lobe, as Astra mentioned, and um, there was a suggestion that maybe this could be the, the god spot in the brain. However, the author themselves actually came out and said, no, that's not what our data show. 
Um, they're actually, <laughs> the activation is a lot more complex than that. It's not just down to one brain region. Um, so yeah, I think what we can actually infer from these kind of general activation studies are quite limited. Um, and then the other thing is um, potential use of psychedelics. I think we'll hang fire on that because there's just so much to talk, to talk about when it comes to psychedelics. Yeah, we could talk about psychedelics in a totally different episode. I think we have plenty of information to like really hammer hard there. Um, but yeah, definitely with the, with the psychedelics thing, um, we know that certain psychedelics elicit spiritual experiences. Um, there's plenty of examples of that from shamanism and and then some of just people's personal experiences with these um, these chemicals. And understanding the neurological pathways that they affect could potentially give us some insight into um, the important receptors, proteins, molecules that maybe are involved in causing some kind of spiritual experience. Um, that remains to be determined, and there needs to be a lot of research in that regard. So, and we'll, we'll touch upon that in a later episode. Um, but yeah, it's something to certainly think about. So then if it's so hard to define spiritual experience, we have all these different models to by which we are measuring spiritual experience. Do we have any biological evidence? And if so, what is that evidence? And are there any features that are shared between these experiences that the evidence supports? Um, so two things that I found um, looking at a review that um, was linked in our group chat, and we can link that down in our episode notes as well, um, were this um, downregulation of the default no mode network, so activity in this region being um, decreased. Um, also, um, kind of cognitive processes of what they refer to as lower brain systems, so um, things that in the mirror neuron, neuron system, um, and in particular, things that inhibit the um, lower brain structure's sensory gating system. So the idea that maybe your brain normally filters out all the sensory information that we're, we're getting in, right? So um, there are things like air on your skin that you're not constantly kind of feeling all of the time because your brain would just uh, kind of filters out those sensations. And the idea is that these kind of lower innate processes in your brain um, they get switched off by psychedelics. So you're experiencing these sensations that would normally be filtered out and then your brain interprets those in different ways, which is interesting. And there's a book called Making Up the Mind by Chris Frith, which talks about this um, for schizophrenics. So they often have experiences of spiders crawling all over their body because they can feel the sensation of kind of air on their skin and that, that tingling is interpreted as bugs. So you can kind of see how that crosses over. And I think that's really interesting because it kind of implies we're able to see beyond our normal perception. I don't know what you guys think about this. I, I just, I just, the, the concept of it is really cool to me. Um, Belle, I see you like nodding and moving your head over there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. So um, I'm a huge Oliver Sacks fan. I have all of my family has like, we bought like, four copies of one of his books one time because we forgot that we already owned it. But what's something interesting is, so he, all for anyone who doesn't know, Oliver Sacks was a writer who wrote about, like he, I believe he, he, he might've been a psychiatrist, but I know he delved in like specifically more abnormal psychology. So instead of dealing with things like a depression, he dealt with very specific things like the man who mistook his wife for a hat, which is the title of one of his books, in which this man literally thought that his wife was uh, a hat stand, essentially. And he he deals with sort of the misfiring of a lot of our senses. Or like there was this one time, there was this man in specifically that collection of short stories who kept throwing himself out of the hospital bed. And every time like they wanted to talk with him and he was like totally normal. And they were like, why are you doing this? And he said, oh, because someone else's leg is in my bed. It was his leg. It was attached to him. But something in his body and in his brain was telling him, that's not my leg. And so he kept throwing the leg out of the bed. But it was himself. So that it's, it's really fascinating to me, that idea of our brain filters out certain sensations. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, we have nerves everywhere. Like if I get hurt, I can like suddenly I become aware of uh, my lungs if they're in pain, for example. But I'm not usually consciously aware of my lungs. So it makes sense that 
when there are other things going on, whether that's induced through um, like a trance experience or induced through medication or through sort of abnormalities that are happening, that that would cause these experiences that you don't usually have and are hard to name. That's just something I never like even considered before, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because this is actually going to reference back to something that Hanny mentioned um, earlier, which is that there is a sort of heterogeneity between people's spiritual experiences. So the the study done with the vets, the results that they um, gathered from that actually contradict the results in one of the um, right parietal like brain studies, and so. This might be an effect of the fact that the brains that they were studying, like, had traumatic experiences or were um, not healthy. But I think it also goes to show that spiritual experience is hard to pinpoint to a specific location, which also suggests the fact that it might be more than just location or, like, neuronal firings in a particular region, and that the pathways that encompass what a spiritual experience is or how you have one are probably actually very complex in in their in their entirety. Um, and that alone, that suggestion makes studying this concept so much more difficult because we typically want hypotheses to be super specific, but if what you're studying is not specific in and of itself, then how do you develop a hypothesis that is specific for that? Um, which again leads to the difficulty in studying this particular topic. Yeah, I think this um this idea of kind of seeing beyond our senses or how or beyond how our normal senses perceive things, it kind of ties into this idea of like transcendence and liminality that you see in like traditional witchcraft. I think that's really, really interesting, particularly because in some of those traditions you see use of things like flying ointment, which we can talk about. Um, and yeah, I think that's kind of a key component of a lot of spiritual experiences that we're talking about. We're talking about transcendence, feeling beyond our bodies a lot of the time. And this isn't always associated with euphoria, but a lot of the time it is. And there's actually biological evidence for that. Um, so psilocybin, for example, which is in magic mushrooms, um, that will downregulate your amygdala, which is the part of your brain which is responsible for fear and anxiety. So um, you'll be feeling this kind of transcendent out-of-body experience, but rather than feeling afraid and nervous, as I would normally get in that experience, um, you start to feel um, kind of relaxed and at ease and you can process it more easily. So I think that's why euphoria is one of the key parts of the, many of the scales, because um, you kind of have to be a sufficient level of relaxed to process these things. And maybe that's why meditation is so important too, um, because you have to get into that sort of chilled out state before you enter the spiritual experience it's true and if you look at just historically like so much dancing there in a lot of um rituals just even uh like if you look at some hellenic rituals a lot of them were just like dancing there was like wine drinking or singing and song which all of those things combined can sort of affect the way that you're going to start perceiving the world and can open your mind I mean that's why a lot of people really emphasize trancing and trance work and, and what people think of as trancing is not you know what a lot of people see online or not online uh what a lot of people see in movies like you're not just gonna be like Ooh. like even just doing something uh repeated is enough to I don't know Gregorian chants were a way of trancing um, music especially like music has like a massive history in, in inducing spiritual experiences I mean I I'm an early musician so I play a lot of sacred music and there's something if, if you get a chance to hear early music done live especially if it's sacred you can understand why <laughs> they had the, such intense spirituality as they did in that time period the like middle ages to um late renaissance you can just understand just because the like the the way that the chord sounds you're like it's so like spiritual and so i, I think that's hard to for us to describe what a spiritual experience is because so many things can induce spiritual experiences 
And if you can't pinpoint the source, it's hard to study it. <laughs> well, and then you run into the question of, is the spiritual experience the same, even though it can be induced by different sources? Um, so is the spiritual experience you have from music the same as the spiritual experience you have from, like, taking a psychedelic? Um, it's, yeah, is one more intense than the other? Do you get the same neurological pathways stimulated or um, the same chemicals being released? Or, you know, is it, is it different in that regard? I think it would be a little different because one, you're taking something and one, you're not. Um, but there still might be some similarities that we, you know, aren't aren't aware of. So I know we said we were going to skip over the psychedelics and entheogens category, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. <laughs> then we'll go more in depth, um, maybe in a different episode. But yeah, so let's talk about entheogens and the way we think that they might alter consciousness on more of a chemical and a biological level. Hanny, I know you mentioned like the flying ointment. You want to expand upon that? Yeah, so um, I think there's obviously quite a rich history of using entheogens. So that's across lots of different cultures. And some of these have more um, of a kind of spiritual basis. So some of them are really more based on animistic connection to the plants. Some of them are a little bit more unclear. So things like thujone from mugwort, that has a purported um, psychedelic effect, but is not very well proven. And then there are your like bona fide psychedelics. Um, so things like um, flying ointment, which I mentioned before. And we're going to really be talking about this latter category. But I think when we're talking about collection, collective unconscious, it's important to note that the cultural aspects of the former two also play into the whole thing. Um, so yeah, I kind of looked into... Um, the how entheogens actually work on your brain um, and a lot of them work on um, 5H2A which is basically a serotonergic receptor in um, in your brain although uh, most of them have quite diverse effects on lots and lots of different neurotransmitters so it's kind of quite hard to pin down a particular unifying mechanism um, and not only do they have very diverse effects on your brain but some of them, like flying movement, will also have an effect on your body. So you might have belladonna, which has quite a, de um, a delirious effect on you, on, on your senses. But then you also have monkshood, which affects your heart, the Purkinje cells, and it causes a fluttering sensation. So you've got this kind of fluttering going on in your heart and you've got this delirious sensation and that leads to the, the feeling of flying. Um, and so that's how you can get quite diverse experiences because you're activating the same pathways, but um, then there are other things that are involved in the experience which shape how your brain is going to interpret it. Um, yeah, do you, do you guys want to weigh in on what, on kind of what you think about this? I have a lot to say on the entheogens, so. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I... Entheogens are interesting because... Um, Hanny, I'm going to steal one of something that you wrote in, in the document here because it kind of feeds into something that, that I wrote. Um, some psychedelic molecules bind to the serotonin, how do you even say this? Serotonergic receptors with a higher affinity in humans than they do in the primate models. So if we take this binding activity as a proxy for experience, we could make the assumption that humans have a greater capacity for mystical experiences like through this route. More tight binding equals more mystic experiences. But as a biochemist, <laughs> and this is something that um, we talk about a lot in our laboratory, um, and I think it's a common misconception within the biochemical community and also outside of it, um, the the logic behind that statement isn't necessarily the best because tighter binding biochemically doesn't correlate directly to more interactions. In fact, it's actually the opposite. Um, typically, if you have something that is a really tight binder, it means that the dissociation of um, psychedelic from the particular receptor is more than likely going to be slower. And if you have a slower dissociation, then more... Uh, molecules can't bind to those receptors and continuously activate the pathway. Now, that being said, 
if you have a tight binder, it's possible that if that pathway is continuously stimulated by that one molecule that won't dissociate, you get this kind of consistent activation. So it can work both ways. You could say that, yes, it binds once you get a continued activation, um, or it might be that it binds once the activation happens, and then you have kind of a one-time, like, downstream effect. Um, I don't know enough about this particular system to say one way or another, but I think that's that's an important distinction here. Um, my guess is it's probably the latter. Like, you have the binding, it causes, you know, some downstream effects and activates a particular pathway, and then over time, um, it's released and gets degraded because people do tend to, like, come down from those kind of experiences. They don't last forever. But also, <laughs> um, in regards to talking about like the, so the societal and cultural effects, I had a thought as I was reading through our outline, which is whether the social, cultural, and even religious affiliations that one has, whether those affect the neurological pathways um, or the activities, or are the spiritual experiences, let's assume for a second that they can be mapped neurologically, are the spiritual experiences then translated through a cultural lens? So basically what I'm trying to say here is, is the spiritual experience influenced by cultural, societal, and religious affiliation, or is it independent from them? Um, Another way to think about it is we are hardwired in our brain to learn a language um, for communications purposes, but the particular language that we learn is dependent on where we grow up. However, the where we grow up is not an impact, like an influence on whether or not we're hardwired to like learn a language. Does that make sense? <laughs> so the same question kind of goes with spirituality. Is spirituality independent of societal cultural and even religious affiliations, like neurologically speaking, and then is it seen, is like the spiritual experience that's independent from those things, then seen through that lens, or is it dependent upon it? Um, I think that'd, that would be a very interesting question to, to answer. And I kind of think psychedelics might be a good way to go about that because the experience that you have from psychedelics is independent of your religious experience, right? Like, we know generally how they would function. The psychedelic would bond to a receptor. It causes this, this downstream pathway. You have a spiritual experience. And then the way that you interpret that is probably going to be based much more heavily upon your like culture and your own religious affiliations if you have one. Um, or in terms of your beliefs, let's say that you're an atheist, you might not attribute it to anything in particular other than the chemical nature of the psychedelic that you're taking. Um, yeah, mind-blowing vibes that I had while thinking about all of this. I think that's a really interesting point. I did kind of look into it. So I found a study that looked at um, psilocybin um, administration in a really small cohort, so just 36 people. And um, in those individuals, they had, um, I think 58% of people reported a spiritual experience, which had a really lasting effect. So like 14-month follow-up, they, they felt that that spiritual experience had a really profound effect on their lives um, and so when you actually look at the quotes from the study a lot of them do reference God so there are things in here like um, the sense that all is one that I experience the essence of the universe and the knowing that God asks nothing of us except to receive love um, and there are lots and lots of quotes in here not all of them reference God but a lot of them do um, and I think it's important to point out that half of those study participants already had a religious affiliation. So I think that's a really good point. A lot of these people were maybe filtering their spiritual experience through a kind of cultural lens. And it's hard to extricate the two in this case. It would be really, really interesting to actually statistically compare those who were religious first and those who weren't. It's interesting that you bring up um, psilocybin. Because there's a, a there was a groundbreaking groundbreaking book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross by John Allegro that came out in the 1970s and just sort of <laughs> everyone lost their mind over this book. Basically, the, the the hypothesis of the book was that early Christianity was a result of um, like psychoactive in. Uh, mushrooms specifically psilocybin is mentioned um, 
that as one of like the specific uh, mushrooms. I know I have not read this book. I know many people who have read this book, but the impact was pretty profound and people went very much back and forth on it. Uh, Allegro does talk quite a bit about fertility cults and that whole sort of uh, bad historiosity that surrounds the idea of a lot of fertility cult studies in the 20th century. But that idea was something that a lot of people are actually starting to go back to in more recent years that they think deserves more thought and more study is this idea of looking at what plants the people who sort of were leaders or creators of certain religious movements, like what plants they had access to, what they were eating, burning, because they just sort of, they did a lot of that. And another interesting thing too, just sort of jumping off of, of that idea of how psychedelics and anthogens have played a role in religious history the Pythia of the Oracle of Delphi are another really, really interesting study because no one really, every time I break this up, they're like, oh, wasn't it just like fumes? And I'm like, well, actually, what's interesting is they don't know what it was. <laughs> so uh, the Pythia were the oracles of Delphi. So like the big priest, priestesses who, who gave a lot of prophetic sayings one of their famous sayings the delphic maxim know thyself comes from them and so a lot of studies have been done around delphi to try to figure out what induced these visions or uh, possessions by apollo however a lot of them were based on historians at that time or writings at that time specifically plutarch who mentioned a chasm. However, when they did excavations in Delphi, they found no evidence of a chasm that uh, like had vapors. Now, they, they did find that there were gases that were sort of coming around from potential traces. However, most people, uh, most studies were saying that actually these gases that were released into the air or found in water were so minute that they probably didn't have an effect and then other people say that oh they burned or chewed oleander which can induce uh, like epileptic like symptoms so what's interesting about delphi in particular is that no one really knows what was going on there some people say that it was you know it was a result of fumes some people say it was a result of chewing or eating or burning anthogens and other people said there there was just other trans like atmosphere of delphi itself was just so trans like that it just sort of it just induced these religious experiences in people. So I think that's interesting. A lot of times people will look back at religion um, and see how potential the environment could have affected those. I mean, Salem's another common example. People are like, weren't, wasn't all of their bread full of our ergot? And I'm just like, no, uh, no, not really. And people actually don't, don't know if that's true. <laughs> it could have just been mass hysteria. Um, and then that then that leads into the question, well, does that invalidate experiences? I think there's, a, especially in at least a culture that I am often surrounded with in, in sort of, um, I don't know, Christian American culture, there, there almost seems to be this idea that that inherently invalidates those experiences. Um, and I don't even think it's actually necessarily just a, an American Christian perspective. I think that also happens too from... Um, atheists where it's like oh well obviously like obviously oh it was a drug ah that explains it it was just that it was nothing else so i think too there's a lot of taboo that surrounds anthogens and psycho and psychedelics i'm gonna hop on that train that you just started <laughs> do you think that it does invalidate the experience like what like what are your thoughts on that um i don't know i i really like this idea that it actually provides like a pathway or a portal to higher understanding, which I, I know that sounds like really sort of woo-woo, but do, do you see where I'm coming from? It's like you're seeing beyond the capacity of your, that your brain can normally see. You have this um, reduced um, filter um, that your senses are being, are being filtered through. Um, your normal neurological pathways or the um, serotonin, the norepinephrine, the dopamine, they're all kind of regulated in different ways. And so you're able to shift your perspective. And so some people could argue, okay, that's just a different way to commune with the divine, if that's something that you believe in. 
So no, I don't think it invalidates it. I just think it provides like another pathway, just in the same way that something like meditation would. And indeed, there are kind of this kind of potential crossover between the activation patterns we see with meditation and with entheogen usage. So it's sort of two sides of the same coin, in my opinion. I think it's super interesting because like I, um, I went, I've gone back and forth on this. I used to very much feel like, no, like it all has to be, I gotta be super sober. But then I was like, well then, you know, what, where's the line between inducing a trance by being, um, I don't know, through fasting or working your body really hard or meditating, quieting your mind, like where's the difference between that and, and and theogens and i think what's interesting um Henry, is you brought up the point of what did you say you said it reduces that filter and i think that's a really interesting way of looking at it because i always saw entheogens as something you're inducing something you're creating an image and i never looked at it as a as a lowering of the filter and allowing other pathways to be created i think that's a really unique way of of looking at that and in a way that makes it seem less like the entheogen is creating the experience and more like it's just allowing the experience to happen. Um, yeah, it's like, so I, I've um, had like mugwort tea before, which does induce fairly vivid dreams. And so I think that's interesting because I've never viewed those dreams as being like, oh, the mugwort. It, like, it physically created it was just like it allowed my brain to do whatever it was doing and have more intense dreams so I think that's an interesting way of looking at it of if it's not creating this experience it's just making it so your body is allowing the experience to happen and tuning into parts it usually doesn't tune into I think of it a lot in the same way that that Hanny mentioned where um utilizing psychedelics is a way to remove kind of the natural limitations that your body has put in place to like help you survive. There are reasons why our body um, disengages from certain sensations um, or kind of pushes them to the side because they are important in a particular moment. And I think that when you meditate or you go into a trance of some sort or you you engage with psychedelics, um, it's it's allowing you to transcend kind of the physical limitations that prevent you from experiencing um, the divine, I guess you could say, or experiencing something outside of outside of the natural world. And so, yes, I, I agree. Um, I think it's just a removal of that barrier to allow you to experience something that may not be important for your survival necessarily. Um, and so you you wouldn't be attuned to it just like on a day-to-day basis, um, but still holds importance spiritually speaking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry that went a little off topic, but we can go back to where we um, were headed, which was kind of the next point that we wanted to talk about. Um, if we understand the chemical basis behind um, kind of this phenomena, which I think we would all agree that we don't. <laughs> We've talked about that a bit. Can we study spirituality on a population level? And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the controversial genetic research on the idea of this, this God gene, which was proposed by a doctor, um, Dean Hammer. I will let Hanny talk about this a little bit first, and then I'll kind of throw in my, my own thoughts. Um, so first of all, this this was a book called The God Gene by Dr. Dean Hamer. I couldn't actually find the uh, paper, or, and there, no no peer peer reviewed um, kind of journal paper that this is based on. So this is just based on what I could find about the book itself. Um, I just want to mention that this book was published um, by Dr. Hammer and like his publishers. So the fact that it's not the reason why it not being in a scientific journal is so kind of odd and relevant here is because it means that it wasn't peer-reviewed by his colleagues in in the scientific field. So it didn't have to go through any kind of that rigorous scrutiny that typical um, articles published in those journals would, which in and of itself is a little sus, um, if we're being totally honest. But yeah, okay, sorry, go on. 
No, no, that's a really good point, especially because this guy is really, really well published. Like you look and he's got thousands and thousands of citations. So it is additionally suspect that if he's got so much, uh, so, so much well-reviewed research, why has this not been published in a journal? Um, but anyway, it was a qualitative analysis of the genetics of um, over a thousand individuals. Um, and they supplied information on transcendent experiences and um, spiritual experiences for a questionnaire. So normally, when you're studying um, genetic traits on a population level, you do something called a GWAS. It's a genome-wide association study. And basically, you have your trait that you're interested in, and you perform a correlative analysis to say, okay, which genes are associated with this trait? With spirituality, I get that it's kind of hard to do that, So because obviously spirituality is not a single trait, as we've discussed. So this is a much smaller study than you'd normally see for population genetics. Normally, I mean, GWAS can be up to like a million individuals. This was only a thousand. Um, but basically, what um, Dr. Hamer proposes is that um, a particular SNP, uh, which is a single nuclei, nucleotide polymorphism, a single base change in the VMAT2 transporter. So that is a, um, a transmembrane transporter in your brain that transports neurotransmitters. Um, this SNP can um, influence spirituality. Um, I obviously couldn't find the original data to analyse, but I didn't like this because the idea that a single SNP can cause these massive, massive changes is really controversial. Even in a huge GWAS, you usually find that complex traits are polygenic, so they're influenced by many, many, many genes. Um, and often they're influenced by much larger structural changes in the genes. So a single tiny mutation seems like quite unlikely to me. Um, another thing that made me suspicious is that it transports lots and lots of different neurotransmitters. So um, that would cause really broad scale changes to the brain. And it makes me think, OK, well, why don't other drugs that um, change neurotransmitters like SSRIs, do they cause spiritual experiences? Do we have evidence of that? I'm not really sure that we do. And finally, um, this is off topic and we can maybe cut this out, but this guy has done um, research on gay genes, which is kind of, well, it's massively unethical in my opinion, um, <laughs> but yeah, this it's, it's not okay to do that kind of research because it, it, it kind of leans towards eugenics. So yeah, I just, I had my suspicions about his research and his motivations behind this research. And as such, um, I'm, I'm not convinced hypothesis i agree with a lot of what you said yep <laughs> um i think that if there is a scientific basis for how humans are quote-unquote hardwired for god i don't think it's going to be in one gene um more likely it'll it'll be an effect that is the result of many different phenotypes likely controlled by a diverse array of genes and even then, perhaps spirituality on a biological level has less to do with the genome and is more so a function of the expression of growth factors or other stimulants um, or, you know, inhibition, activation of downstream pathways, you know, so on. It could be a lot of reasons. And I think it's misleading to claim that it's entirely based off of this, this protein, this VMAT2, especially given the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, um, Hanny, it's an integral membrane protein meaning that it it spans the membrane. So there's some on both both surfaces and then it also goes through the membrane um, with a low selectivity for the monomines that it brings into vesicles for transport to the synapse. To the synapse. Integral membrane proteins are important. Yes, not going to deny it. Um, but if the selectivity is low, then how can you make an argument for it being specific for a God neurotransmitter? Because it's not specific. That's kind of the whole purpose of VMAT2 is to take these monomines that need to be transmitted to the synapse and protect them from these monomine oxidases, which would eat them up. Um, so the fact that it isn't like target specific in and of itself, I think makes a case against his whole hypothesis. Um, and I was also doing some research on this and I came across an article that did um, an analysis of Hammer's God gene hypothesis in an academic setting. So these students were in a biology course and they took samples from themselves and they performed some standard biochemical techniques to isolate their VMAT2 genes and see if they had this 
spiritual mutation, which um, I don't know if we mentioned it earlier, but it's an adenine to a cytosine in the DNA um, that Hammer mentioned. And Hammer's hypothesis here was that the the um, mutation from an A to a C, so those who, who had the C in this VMAT gene in this particular location were more spiritual than those who had an A. And it could be a C in both um, like chromosomes or just the one. Um, the students also took a temperament character inventory test. This is the same one that Hammer used in his own studies um, to measure spirituality. And while the purpose of the study wasn't necessarily to falsify or support Hammer's hypothesis, um, nor were there enough students for it to really be statistically significant one way or another, the conclusions that were drawn from this paper were really interesting. Um, and I'll link it down below. I really recommend checking it out. And they show a very little correlation between whether a student has an A, an adenine, or a cytosine at that particular position and their like level of spirituality. Um, so that was kind of a, a test done in an academic setting to see, to put this hypothesis kind of um, under the, the microscope of science. And it didn't hold up then. Um, again, it's not statistically significant necessarily, but I think it, it suggests that maybe this kind of isn't where we should be thinking and should be kind of kept, kept in the past <laughs> um, as a less legitimate hypothesis. I got this idea because I was looking at the monoamines and I got thinking about monoamine um, oxidase inhibitors because obviously, like you said, the vesicle protects the monoamines from monoamine oxidases. So maybe people who, who take these uh, monoamine oxidases would have loads of spiritual experiences and there's no evidence to suggest that's the case. But it did get me thinking about um, how uh, a lot of these scales, as you mentioned, were kind of tailored to people who are maybe more neurodivergent um, people who may be experiencing like psychosis and kind of made me think how um, mental health maybe isn't really taken into account in these cases um, so I'm just like sharing from personal experience um, I don't have a psychotic disorder but I have had, have had psychotic experiences in the past um, and that has actually shaped my um, practice today because um, they've had kind of a profound uh, profound effect on the way that I um, perceive divinity and the same thing with OCD it's like it makes me pray a lot and I'm like is that inherent is that natural to me or is that just um is that is that just a manifestation of um, a particular repetitive behavior so I don't know I, I just think that there's probably quite a lot of spiritual behavior in the natural population that gets missed under the guise of mental illness and I was wondering what you guys think about that yeah, I don't know. The, the intersection of spirituality and, and mental health is one that I think has been often like misapplied retroactively. Like there's a lot of people who will say, oh, well, this saint didn't see Jesus because she exhibited signs of temporal lobe epilepsy which can like induce uh, visions and other sort of ecstatic experiences. And so I think it becomes very complicated when you're looking at the history of mental health and mental illness and also spirituality, because things can get quite a bit dicey. It's hard to retroactively, I mean, a lot of historians um, and psychologists have issues with retroactively diagnosing people because obviously the way that you write about an experience is it is influenced by the writer and if the writer is not the person well it you know it, it, it's like i'm not gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna look at descriptions of most people in like ancient greece and be like that's 100 percent correct because now there's a lot of myth and and, and weird weirdness and we have you know modern myths as well and it's hard to retroactively diagnose people but I think that it happens disproportionately to, to people who have exhibited spiritual experiences. And it's hard myself as someone with mental who is mentally ill, but also a very spiritual person. Because part of that is looking at myself and it's like, where is one and where is the other? Are they something that 
works together or are they something that is opposed to each other? And I'm like, would I have be the spiritual if I didn't have certain illnesses? Um, I think I think the answer I think the answer is yes. I mean, it's hard for me to say that, but I, I think oftentimes people will look at historical figures who are exhibiting spiritual experiences and automatically attempt to diagnose, which I don't think is necessarily the right approach, especially you know where there was there other trans work happening. Um, what what was the environment like? You know, was it, it could have been an entheogenic experience. Um, it could have just been, could have just happened. Um, so, yeah, I think the intersection of sort of mental health and ecstatic spiritual experiences or just general spiritual experiences is one that is still today poorly experienced. I mean, we see with Carl Jung and, and Collective Unconscious and even and Joseph, Joseph Campbell is a little bit more like spiritual in the way that he talks. Um, I mean... Carl Jung straight up said that it's it's pretty much all in the mind. It's like it's like he dances that line. The collective unconscious is at its core in the mind, at least according to a lot of his theories, which I don't necessarily entirely agree with. Um, but yeah, I think that 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 field is kind of uh, I don't know fraught with with thorns of of problems of. Well, are you invalidating one thing when you are looking at another? Um, yeah, I kind of wound around, but I hope that made some sense. And do you think it makes it more or less valid if it's as a result of a mental health issue or a mental health, mental divergence? I, I definitely don't think that it makes it less valid. I mean, that would be to me that's silly to say that it it would be less valid. I think a lot of times people will be like. Oh, well, obviously, like, a lot of it, when you're looking at it, when people will, like, retroactively apply labels to people in the past having spiritual experiences, it can come from an ableist perspective where they're like, oh, I can discredit this because um, it was all in their head or they had a mental illness. So, like, oh, obviously, that explains it. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) what? That doesn't necessarily invalidate it. Um, Also, like, don't be a retroactive armchair psychologist. (laughs) Even psychologists can't diagnose people in the past. It's just impossible. Um, yeah, so I definitely don't think that it uh, makes it invalid. That just to me is is silly and ableist. Yeah, I I agree. I don't think it makes it invalid. And in fact, I think that anybody who says that spirituality like the validity of one's spiritual experience is dependent upon like how it happens is insane. Like that's ridiculous. Um, your spiritual experience is valid, whether it came, it came about because of mental illness or you engaged in like mushrooms one time and you had a super spiritual experience. And so now you like believe it. It doesn't matter where it came from. Um, it's still valid regardless. But for mental health, I do think that the two are connected um, because I myself know that like my mental health has played a role in like why I'm spiritual. Um, but I don't think that we're at a point where we can fully understand kind of where the two merge and where they're also separate. I think we can say one influence, like they influence each other in different ways. Um, but other than that, I think that's kind of a, it's a road that needs to be traversed with caution and the right intentions, um, I think, to, to really glean useful information as to what that, that connection might be. But, um, final thoughts. What is, you know, is it all biological? Is it all mystical? Is it all in our heads? Um, do we have this unique portal to the gods instilled in our in our brains or even in our genes? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's that's my answer. Even after all the research that we've done, all the papers that we've read in preparation for this episode, I don't know. Um, there does certainly seem to be some evidence suggesting that spirituality changes things on a neuronal and even a chemical level. Um, but I really don't think that we're anywhere close to being at a point where we can definitely say, you know, yes, we are linked and here is the evidence. There needs to be a lot more research to be done. Um, but as we mentioned in our meditation and mindfulness episode, 
this kind of research, and even in this one, um, this kind of research faces a lot of limitations that makes it incredibly difficult to study. Um, I think only time will tell if we can even come to a conclusion as to whether it is biological um, or biochemical or neuronal or not. Um, and even though I don't study this um, myself in, in my own like education, I definitely intend on keeping up with the research and the investigators who do take on the challenge because I'm really curious to see what we come up with um, in the future. Yeah, what I took from this episode was that there are lots of different um, paths to spiritual experiences. So they might be more cultural, they might be more uh, biological in your brain, they might be kind of entheogen based, they might even be mental illness based, but they're all valid if they have usefulness to you. And um, I think it's kind of cool, actually, how there's so many different paths to the same goal. Um, I also think that entheogens are cool and uh, be safe, but I will be investigating those further. (laughs) Yeah, something that I I think I've definitely... Uh, taking away is that it's really hard to look biologically and uh, you know neurologically at spirituality it's just so hard Um, however I do think there is a psychological like what we see in in psychology I think I don't necessarily think divinity is innate in humans but I definitely think searching for meaning and searching for symbols and searching for patterns is fairly innate in humans just from a survival mechanism and and you know we've created these symbols throughout eons and i don't know spiritualities it can be fun <laughs> it's fun to me i don't know i get to make pretty altars <laughs> um so i don't think necessarily we're built for divinity but i think especially just looking at um from a psychological perspective i think we look for patterns we look for symbols and that's normal and natural all right well that's all for this episode of test tubes and cauldrons um thank you for hanging in there with us and this was kind of a long one but we'll be back next week um to talk about a different topic and you know give more of our opinions that you love that you love to hear everything that we've talked about um a lot of the articles that we've mentioned will be linked down below for you to peruse yourself um, we encourage that you do so and come to your own conclusions. This, this, these are our analysis, our analyses rather, um, of the articles that we read. But obviously, if you have different thoughts, please let us know. Um, this is really meant to, to spark discussion about um, this topic within the occult and spiritual community. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.